0: Hello, and welcome to The Upgrade, the podcast from the team at Lifehacker, where we help you improve your life one week at a time. I'm Melissa Kirsch, Editor-in-Chief of Lifehacker, and Alice was called away on an emergency, so it's just me today. Today, we're talking about how to get a better night's sleep. It seems like we're all trying and failing to get that elusive, perfect eight hours of sleep a night. Why are we all so sleep-deprived? What is good sleep hygiene, and how can we practice it? How can we change our behavior in order to stop feeling so tired all the time? Today, we'll hear from experts like the New York Sleep Doctor.
1: You don't want to do anything in bed that is stressful. The idea is that we are Pavlovian, and we can train ourselves to respond to
0: bed with relaxation and sleep. And Drew Ackerman, the host of the podcast Sleep With Me, will tell us a bedtime story.
2: Once upon a time, there was a bedtime story. Like other stories, it had a beginning, a middle, and an end.
0: Travel and sleep are a tricky combination. Trying to adjust your sleep schedule to a new time zone can be a disaster. So we talked to Lifehackers health editor, Beth Skorecki, to get some tips on how to sleep while traveling.
3: Hi, I'm Beth Skorecki. And here are five hacks that I use to sleep well when I travel. Hack number one, sleep like crap beforehand so you'll be tired when it's time to sleep. I don't sleep well on planes. So usually if I have a red eye and I arrive at my destination in the morning, my goal is to get just enough sleep on the plane so that I'm ready to crash in the early evening after I check into the hotel. Our food and beverage editor, Claire Lower, did the opposite for one of her recent trips. She stayed up late the night before she traveled so that when she got on her plane in the afternoon, she could zonk right out. Hack number two, eat and exercise during your destination's waking hours. Our bodies take cues from our environment to tell us when it's nighttime and daytime. If you're eating, your body says, oh, I should be awake now. So you don't want to have a really late dinner. Exercise is another strong signal, so try exercising in the morning or afternoon to help reset your body's clock. Hack number three. It's hard to sleep on a plane, but pack things to make you comfortable. You've got your pillow, check, but don't forget earplugs or noise-canceling headphones. And dress in layers so that you can get comfortable no matter the temperature. If you like to have a drink on a plane, be careful. Even though alcohol can make you feel tired, your sleep tends not to be as restful. Hack number four, at the hotel, set up a nice little bedtime routine for yourself. Bring things that make you comfortable. It's not too indulgent to bring your own slippers or to pack your favorite pillow. And as you're winding down, don't just spend all evening on your phone because we all know screens can interfere with sleep. Instead, read a book or do something else that's calming and that you enjoy, maybe yoga. If your hotel room isn't dark enough, try this classic hack. Grab one of the hangers from the hotel closet, the kind that has clips on it, you know, the kind to hang your pants, and use that to clip the curtains closed. Hack number five. Finally, your evening will go better if you know you have a plan for your morning. Keeping your regular routine can help here too. I work out in the mornings when I'm at home, so I always make time for a morning workout when I'm traveling too. I also always take some time when I arrive at a place to figure out my plans for the next morning. Everything from what time to wake up to what I'll need to have in my bag when I leave the hotel. Knowing exactly what will happen in the morning makes it easier to relax at night.
0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu podcast. And now it's time for the interview where we interview someone. We're joined in the studio today by Dr. Janet Kennedy, a licensed clinical psychologist and founder of NYC Sleep Doctor. Dr. Kennedy specializes in the treatment of sleep disorders in adults and young children. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. What does a typical sleep cycle look like?
1: So... A sleep cycle typically lasts about 90 minutes, and you start out in very light sleep. That's phase one, um, and that is usually five or ten minutes, um, but in people who have insomnia, it can be more prolonged. You might not know you're asleep when that's happening. It's often a time when you go in and out of sleep. You have weird thoughts, waking dreams, um, it it actually turns out that if you hear voices or see things during this period of sleep, it doesn't count as psychosis. It's your brain is just doing some weird things. So you then you transition into unconscious sleep, with, um, but it's still light sleep, and that is stage two. From there, you go into deep sleep, which is what everybody is after. um, And all of the apps will tell you that you're not getting enough of it. Um, But deep sleep is when your brainwaves slow down and they get very rhythmic and it's very restorative. How
0: long does phase two last generally?
1: I believe it's 10 to 20 minutes. Okay. And then then you go into deep sleep, which shares its portion with dreaming sleep. So, in the beginning of the night, you have longer phases of deep sleep and shorter phases of dreaming, and then, the, then they kind of switch as the night goes on. So I often tell people if they're struggling at like 4 or 5 a.m., they've already had the deep sleep that they were going to get for the night. It can be difficult to go back to sleep at that time, but it doesn't mean that you're necessarily profoundly sleep-deprived. You may need more sleep. You may need that dreaming sleep, but it's not devastating.
0: When is it devastating?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I try to draw the distinction between a bad night or a bad week and chronic sleep deprivation. So if you're someone who routinely gets – less than, let's say, six, six and a half hours of sleep. We're supposed to get seven to eight and a half hours of sleep. Whether we do that and hit that wonderful number is another story. But if you're below six on a regular basis, I would say that you're probably chronically sleep deprived. Um, So that is a problem. If here and there you have a night where your sleep doesn't feel restful or you're up and down a lot, or it's hard to fall asleep, or you're waking up early, and that sleep duration is truncated in some way, that's not going to be harmful in the long term. It may make you feel awful during the day. It might make you more anxious. It might make you feel depressed. It might make you eat lots of carbs. It might make you clumsy, things like that. But ultimately, you'll rebound from that if you kind of don't go overboard trying to compensate. That ratchets up the performance anxiety and just makes it harder to settle down and get the sleep you need.
4: And this is a question we've both sort of asked each other all the time. Is, like, is it possible to earn back sleep if, you, if you're sleep-deprived? Can you spend a, a weekend just sleeping in and earn back all that?
1: You can't make up for all of it you can make up for some of it. You will get. You could possibly get a little bit more sleep and that would help you, but you're not going to reclaim in 20-minute increments the five hours you didn't get through the week. But you also don't have to because once you get into a better rhythm again, you'll start feeling well and you'll be able to take care of your sleep and you'll have the energy you need and and that bad patch will just be a bad patch. It's not like it's imprinting some terrible long-term defect.
0: Right. It's so funny how we talk about sleep debt as if it's like with as if it's like money, you know? Right. As if like you could earn it back and then have it to use on something else. Or like you're not gonna undo the fact, right? Like that you you didn't get that good night's sleep and you had all the repercussions of it last week. It's not So that's done. And you could sleep late on the weekend and feel better and feel refreshed, right? Yes,
1: but you could also steal sleep from the future if you do that. So if you oversleep on the weekend, let's say trying to make up for a rough week, there's a really fine line between recuperating and sort of getting the adrenaline out of your system that accumulates and feeling rested and then making it harder to get back into a good rhythm. We tend to sleep a little later on the weekend, but then we want to go to bed. We tell ourselves we need to go to bed even early on Sunday night to get a great start for Monday and get the week off on the right track. Mm -hmm. But if your body's out of sync with that and you try to go to bed before you're ready, you'll have an anxiety response, and then it'll take you even longer to fall asleep. So let's say on that Monday night you followed your body and said, I am not sleepy. I slept my butt off all weekend, and there's just no way this is happening. And you stayed up, and you watched an extra episode of something not too terrible, or then you got into bed and just said, I'm just going to read until I can't stay awake. Maybe that would be 2 in the morning, but you wouldn't have to load up on clonopin, and you wouldn't be an anxious wreck. And you probably would fall asleep faster than if you just lay there and tried.
4: What's your advice about, I know they say, to avoid screens for a certain amount of time before bed and, like, even dim the lights. I've heard so many things about light. and Like the
0: color of the light, that type of light.
1: Again, you can go overboard with this, but, yes, you should be off your handheld screens a minimum of an hour before you want to go to sleep. That's primarily because these things – emit blue light, that is particularly effective at shutting down melatonin. There's a little switch in back of your eye that tells your melatonin to turn on or turn off, and it stays off while that light's coming in. So that disrupts your circadian rhythm, making it harder to fall asleep. So that's number one. Yes, you can get blue light blocking glasses. You can do all kinds of tricks to try to help that. But Ultimately, you should put your screens away because of reason two, which is that our screens keep us plugged into business. And even if it's not work business, it's personal business and things that prompt list making tasks. Um, it prompts lots of feelings that m- may not be great when you're looking at social media. And also, this when we're looking at screens, we're multitasking. Very often we're looking at screens while we're watching TV or while we're talking to somebody. It's not the best thing to do. It's certainly antisocial, but we do it. And then you're clicking around on your screen doing five different things at the same time. So that's keeping your brain active in a way that is not conducive to sleep. So what I was saying before about you know, creating a healthier relationship with screens I think is really important here. It's not that we have to throw these things away, but I have to understand what it's doing to me and set those boundaries. So a minimum of an hour before bed, you don't need to go crazy like lighting candles and, you know, um, turning down all the lights. You can if you find that relaxing, but if you worry that if you don't, you're going to somehow sabotage things, then it it turns into something less healthy.
0: Something I heard once um, when I first heard the term sleep hygiene, which I think, you know, it should be adopted in many other areas of our lives. I talk a lot about digital hygiene because mm-hmm. I feel like people complain about sleep, people complain about their digital habits, and I feel like we can be more diligent and clean up our acts in those ways. A rule of thumb I heard was to only use your bed for sleeping and sex. Is that that still the rule of thumb? That is a good rule.
1: I add to that reading in bed before bed as long as you're happy doing that. You don't want to do anything in bed that is stressful. You don't want to do anything that sort of cues work or anything outside of the realm of like relaxation and, and pleasantness. The edict of nothing but sleep and sex comes from sleep restriction, and the idea is that we are Pavlovian, and we can train ourselves to respond to bed with relaxation and sleep. For most of my clients, reading at the end of the bedtime routine, it allows them to be distracted while their body takes over with its natural fatigue. So the mind gets sort of parked in this fantasy world, um, creating images and remembering plot lines and, you know, going somewhere else, which is why fiction is best. Definitely no Um, self-help. But that then allows the body to return to this more natural way of falling asleep where the body tells you, like, you got to put that book down now because I want to sleep. And that is such a pleasurable experience. Once you get over the hump of the anxiety that you're never going to be able to fall asleep. When I ask people to do this for the first time, they're like, well, what if I'm still reading at four in the morning? And I'm like, well, you're going to teach yourself that eventually you will fall asleep and it will start to take less and less time because you'll trust your body to tell you when it's time.
4: Is there anything that we could take? You mentioned melatonin. Like, is I don't know how that works. Is that a thing? So
1: clonopin is okay. If you take it as prescribed, then it's okay to take occasionally. Melatonin is okay to take occasionally. Ambien is okay to take occasionally. I don't personally love melatonin because it is a hormone that your body produces anyway. You don't have a deficit in it. A lot of people end up taking it every day just the way they would take like vitamin D. And I I don't think that's appropriate. It also tends to come in dosages that far exceed the effective maximum, which is somewhere between, I feel like it's 0.2 and and 1 milligram, and you see it on the shelves at like 3, 10. You know, it's it's really high. Um, Melatonin is awesome for jet lag, though, so I highly Mm -hmm. recommend it for that. Having medication or supplements in your toolbox for a rough night is okay. But it's also really important to try to figure out why you're using it. So are you using it because you're not taking good care of your sleep? Are you using it because you are not taking good care of your stress? Is your work-life balance off? Are you expecting to work like crazy and then dive into bed and fall asleep? Sometimes we actually have to do that. Like the, the world conspires to keep us at work late And there isn't time to unwind. And so you make the choice of, okay, do I want to spend an hour at 1 o'clock in the morning unwinding and getting myself ready for bed and reading? And sometimes the answer is no. Um, It's not that you couldn't and it wouldn't work. It would work. And that's where I like people to be is to have this faith that they could do it either way and make the choice that sometimes the
0: medication is worth it. I do it sometimes too. What about the evening routine, specifically meals? I find that, you know, having a job and a social life and fitting in eating and getting to bed early enough that I can get up at the right time in the morning is really challenging. And it it becomes, the busier you are, sometimes the more challenging it is. Right. I mean, I would say if you don't have time to
1: eat until late, don't eat a lot. Um, make your midday meal your primary meal where you're really focusing on, you know, all the food groups and all of that balance and wonderful stuff you should be doing. It's just not good to go to bed full because then you're... You just sleep terribly. You sleep terribly. Mm-hmm. You get reflux. It. You know, it. it's just not great for your sleep. So it's not that you have to be perfect in all of your habits. You have to figure out how to make it work for you most of the time so that it's out of the ordinary when you have a night where it's 10 o'clock and you haven't eaten anything. I mean, that's just not good for you anyway, but the idea of like, okay, so if you're working late, maybe you need to eat before you leave work Mm -hmm. or maybe you need to eat, you know, something before you go out and then have something light when you get home. And and figuring again, it's just figuring out – how to work it for you so that you're not going to bed starving, which is also bad, and you're not going to bed over
0: full. When people come to you for treatment, what does that look like? Typically,
1: people come in for an evaluation, we spend you know a good hour talking through their whole history, including their mental health history, um, to really understand what's going on, what are the factors at play, um, and then... From there, they'll track their sleep for a week or two with a sleep diary, and then we'll have somewhere between four and eight sessions. We start by changing the schedule and the routines. Sometimes I do that very intensively, and sometimes we ease into it depending on the circumstances and also how anxious the person is. If they're taking medication and they want to stop, which is my hope that they would want to stop. Um, we, We figure out where in the course of treatment it makes sense to start tapering that. We'll also work with elements of sleep restriction, like making sure you're getting up at the same time every day, you're not going to bed before a certain time, even if you're tired. And if you are not tired at that appointed time, you're still not going to bed. You know, the idea of not going to bed until you're very sleepy. And then from there... We're working on the anxiety and the fears and doing some cognitive interventions to help people manage the thoughts that really reinforce the bad behaviors and the thoughts that keep them agitated and anxious. And it's well, well-researched. It's it's actually pretty formulaic. And all of the data say that it's the most effective way to treat insomnia, And the benefits last way longer than um, medication. Because if you're taking medication, you're really just treating the symptom of sleeplessness. And when you're doing the treatment, you're addressing the underlying cause of the problem so that you can get out of the episode of insomnia, but also arm a person with tools so that they can be more resilient when sleep variation happens, because it does happen. For women, it can happen once or twice a month because we're at the mercy of our hormones. So whether it's happening on a monthly basis or a semi-annual basis, you know what to do when it happens, and it's much less terrifying.
0: Recently, we were we were reading something about dreams and how people believe that if they dream or if they remember their dreams that they slept well and that that's not necessarily the case.
4: Oh, I thought it was the opposite. Oh. That means you're wake, you wake up, you're waking up and remembering your dream. That's what I had always heard.
1: So not a tremendous amount is known about dreams and exactly why we do it, what they mean. Certainly, as you know, for decades and probably centuries, people have been interpreting them and trying to sort of imagine what they what they do mean and what they say about us. What we do know is that certain important functions happen when you're dreaming and so you do need to dream. It is in particular where your memory is consolidated. So it's very important to have that phase of sleep and a lot of medications suppress that. So the quality of sleep you get when you take certain medications is different. Dreaming happens most vividly later in the night, but some people never remember their dreams, and we don't really know why.
4: I'm wondering about quality of sleep. Can you—is it possible to be getting enough sleep but still be tired, and is there something going on and— What's up with that? Yes.
1: There are many things that could be going on. So the big, big one that could be going on is sleep apnea. So people often don't realize they have sleep apnea, and they think they're sleeping all night, and yet they're falling asleep spontaneously, often at the wheel, um, but in other situations as well. And um, so that's a big one. And what happens in sleep apnea is that While you're sleeping, your airway becomes obstructed and you stop breathing. By what? Like your tongue? Um, It is typically uh, the soft tissue in your throat. Um, It could also be a deviated septum. Other things that can diminish your sleep quality, diet, particularly lots of caffeine, um, because even if you can fall asleep when you drink caffeine— it alters your sleep cycle so that you're not getting the deep restorative sleep. Alcohol as well, same thing.
4: And when you say alcohol has an impact, how like how how much? Like could you have could you have a glass of wine with yes. that? Yes, yes, okay. you may have a glass of okay, wine. Thank
1: you. You don't want to go to sleep feeling the effects of alcohol, and then from there, if you feel like your sleep is not restorative enough or if you feel like your sleep is just, you don't know how much sleep you need, it's not consistent, and you want to understand it better, keep a sleep diary. Because if, if you keep a sleep diary and you notice like, gee, I feel amazing if I have 1.2 glasses of wine versus four, even if I'm drinking that at five o'clock, then you know. And... When you do feel crappy, it doesn't then cause anxiety because it's random. If you know what happened and the choice you made, then at least you can own it and say, like, that was dumb.
0: Any apps or technology that you recommend to help with sleep?
1: Well, there are some sleep diary apps that can be helpful in tracking your sleep. There's one called Sorcady that I've actually been using with my patients. And what's nice about that is it actually will help link you with a professional in your area if it turns out that you need some kind of intervention. It's not designed to like create pathology where there is none. It just helps people get in touch with professionals. And there are some others there I would lean away from the digital sleep trackers, like the wearables or the things you put under your mattress or your pillow, because they don't necessarily give accurate readings, and they certainly don't give readings that a layperson can understand very well. So I I see a lot of people very anxious about the readings that they're getting from these things, and they're not bad. We get less deep sleep than we think we should. That's sort of a bottom line there. The other thing I don't like about those apps is that they promote a perfectionism and an illusion of control uh, that just leads to more anxiety about doing all the right things and then frustration when that doesn't have the desired result. Other apps I think are helpful are the meditation apps. I don't necessarily prescribe them to. F- Help people fall asleep. I much prefer them to help people end their day and clear the mind. The problem with doing meditation or a guided relaxation to fall asleep is that if you don't fall asleep by the end of it, you get very, very upset. And then you have a bigger problem on your hands. So if you're doing it just to um, relax and pass the time, and you're totally fine if you're not asleep when it's over, then that's cool. But I do prefer that people fall asleep on their own and letting sleep
0: come to them. Well, thank you so much for coming in and for talking with us today. My yeah. pleasure. Thank you.
1: Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars,
3: used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait.
1: Auto Trader.
0: Now it's time for a bedtime story about bedtime stories. We're going to get really meta here. Here's Drew Ackerman.
2: Hey, I'm Drew Ackerman. I make Sleep With Me, a bedtime story podcast for adults or people looking for a bedtime story. Uh, So here we go. Once upon a time, there was a bedtime story. Like other stories, it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. But it had a kind of different way of getting there, of going there. Instead of geometric shapes to the story, rising and falling action, twists and turns, uh, interesting events, drama, romance, bedtime story uh, takes their time getting there with long, slow curves, uh, goes down side roads and turns back in on itself, Uh, Bedtime Story also has a specific intention. Uh, It exists to keep someone company as they fall asleep. And that intention influences Bedtime Story's pace, which is slow and languid. It's tone, which is calm and measured. Uh, Bedtime Story has a presence, too, uh, that says, hey, I'm here to help. A good starting point uh, to to start your own bedtime story is uh, giving directions. Uh, So think of a place you like to go uh, where you like to get a little treat. Uh, Maybe it's a nice view and then you have a starting point and a destination. And just imagine you're giving someone you really care about those directions and imagine you're taking the person by the hand, you're you're leading them on the way, but you have a loose grip as you're guiding them. past that tree and say, oh, as you're leading them past that tree, start to picture what you see as you tell them. Uh, and then you'll pass the house that has like that purple mailbox. I don't know if a kid painted it or as an adult. Uh, so what mundane details might stick out to you? Now, you're going to go left uh, at the next intersection, but don't forget to look down. That's where someone named P.B. wrote their initials in the uh, sidewalk in 1997. And if your mind wanders, if you're giving them the directions, you'll let it wander. See where it goes. Sometimes a bedtime story tells me when we talk, you know, uh, over tea, Go ahead and take that journey, uh, you know, walk through it in your mind, uh, nice and slow, and soak up the details as you tell them. Uh, just be sure to use language uh, that's nice and open-ended and calm, but you're slowly headed to to, 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 to somewhere. Uh, maybe you don't get there. Maybe they're already asleep, but you're still there. Uh, taking them along, maybe some part of them is still listening. But I was trying to tell you how to kind of get, get easy way to tell a bedtime story. It's friendly because you care, and uh, you know, go ahead and do it. It'll bring you closer to the person you're talking to. And don't forget, if you if you if you want to just practice a bedtime story on behalf of plants everywhere, they love hearing them. Believe me. Uh, Maybe I should. Wa- I'm here watering you with a bedtime tale. And I'm wishing everyone good night.
4: And now it's time for our upgrade of the week. Every week we talk about one tiny thing that's making a big difference in our lives. Melissa, what's your upgrade this week?
0: So, the. The basket for the silverware in my dishwasher is old. The dishwasher itself is old, I'm assuming. It doesn't look like one of those sleek, modern, stainless steel dishwashers that the the rich people have. Um, anyway, the, the basket for the silverware has holes in it from, you know, people putting knives or something over the years. And so the silverware was falling out the bottom of the basket. And I thought there has to be a way to fix this because... I don't want to buy a new basket for my rental apartment because those baskets are not cheap. You know, they know that you need the specific Whirlpool basket and they're going to charge you like 40 bucks, which just feels like too much for something that I don't own. Anyway, I saw this on YouTube or a variation on it and so it's not my hack specifically, but I got like those flexible cutting boards, you know, that like are made of thin plastic and I cut pieces to the exact size of the bottom of each chamber of the basket and then drilled holes in the I know yeah I used I used my drill drilled holes in the plastic um so that you know the water can drain out and now uh no more silverware falling out of the bottom of the basket there's an alternate hack that involves zip ties that I'd also tried and that did was very difficult and I do not recommend it
4: Wow Yeah, it's quite a hack. Thanks. Look at you. Yeah. (laughs) Janet, what's your upgrade this week?
1: My upgrade is my phone case because I enjoy not carrying a purse sometimes. And so it has this handy flip thing that I'm demonstrating for you here oh, where I can it's got keep a flip thing. It's sort of
0: like a Halliburton case, suitcase like that <laughs> exactly. like a that like a it's like get a, smart. Yeah, exactly. Like a CIA agent would carry, but it's for your phone. It's
1: awesome. And I can keep my metro card and my ID and my ATM and a credit card and it really Is awesome because especially just getting on and off the train, I mean, pretty soon we're going to be able to do that with our phones, but I always have my phone in my hand. I don't want to dig around in my purse for my wallet, and it makes things nice and light and easy. Alice, what's your upgrade? Well, I just came back from Italy, as you know, (laughs) because I can't
4: shut up about it, and I had such a fun time, but that's not the upgrade. The upgrade is not everyone should go to Italy. There's an app that everyone needs if they are traveling internationally called Mobile Passport. If you don't have global entry, which, I don't know, you need like an interview for that or something. I don't know even what that is. To kind of avoid the long lines through customs when you're coming back, mobile passport. You just answer the questions you're normally going to answer in customs on this app. And for some reason, you're in a separate line. No one else is in it. And you breeze right through customs. The mobile passport line. There's a mobile passport line. At every airport? Yeah. Well, when you're coming back to the States. Yeah. It's like the secret that only a few people know about, and I used it, and it was, you know, there was a line snaking around, and then there's mobile passport line, and there's three people. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And that's our show. The Upgrade is produced by Casey Georgie, and this episode was mixed by Jamie Colazzo. Our executive director of audio is Mandana Mofidi. If you love The Upgrade, and we know you do, please go to Apple Podcasts and write us a review. It means the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email or voice memo to upgrade at lifehacker.com or leave us a voice message at 347-687-8109. We'd also love to learn a little bit more about you. Please complete a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. That's Wondery.com slash survey. You'll have the opportunity to tell us what you like about this show and what you want to hear in future episodes. Follow Lifehacker on Twitter at Lifehacker and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Lifehacker. And you can find show notes for this and every episode of The Upgrade at Lifehacker.com slash the show.